0: The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome to you this morning in the name of Jesus. If you're a visitor with us, I want to welcome you. I want to say thank you for choosing to be with us, to choosing to check things out, to worship with us this morning. If you're tuning in on the live stream or listening to the podcast, thanks for listening as well. I'm excited this morning. It's our final sermon in our series, Psalms, The Seasons of Life. And so I'm also excited because next Sunday, again, just a quick reminder, is the very beginning of our new sermon series, Luke, The Spirit-Powered Gospel and so Ben Langford is going to be here to uh, kick that off and we're gonna see Luke's story of salvation from Jesus's birth and life all the way to his death and resurrection we're gonna see Jesus preach and enact the gospel and God's liberating power through the Holy Spirit so I'm excited for that and before we get going this morning wrapping up the Psalms I wanted to just call out five people by name uh, to thank. A lot of people deserve thanks for helping us get settled into this building. A lot of people have already been thanked, but I don't think we've called out just a few that were on my heart that I saw pretty much, I think, sleeping on the stage (laughs) the last week before we moved in. Uh, So one of them is Rick Geyer. Uh, If something is hung up on the walls, there's a good bet that he put it there. Uh, So if it falls down, he's your guy. (laughs) But we're grateful for that. And also, Brad and Tim Giddens basically went from their day jobs to pull night shifts here for probably more than a week, actually, doing all sorts of odds and ends. Uh, And then finally, uh, Tom and Sue Gooch. You will never know how much time Tom and Sue Gooch put into setting up these chairs you are sitting in. Talk about engineering. I mean, it was like they were trying to get a shuttle back to Earth. <laughs> that kind of precision, it, it was truly incredible. So thank you to them. Give, uh, give them a round of applause, would you? Yeah. <clears throat> Again, there are a lot of people to thank. So if you lifted a finger, said one prayer, thank you just for being here and helping us get into this space together. We're in our final psalm this morning. Psalm 146, a psalm of new orientation. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God all my life long. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortals in whom there is no help. When their breath departs, they return to the earth. On that very day, their plans perish. Happy are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord Opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He upholds the orphan and the widow. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations, praise the Lord. Let's pray. God, we praise You this morning. You are reigning. You are Lord of heaven and earth. And we give thanks. We give thanks for Your mercies, Your grace, Your wisdom, and Your justice. God, we ask for Your Gospel, Your good news to take root in our hearts yet again this morning. I ask for the gift of preaching and God, I ask that Your Spirit would be present with us and would teach us all that You have commanded us. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. The '86 Celtics were unbeatable—pretty close, not literally—but the 1986 Boston Celtics went 40 and one at home and. Combined between their playoff and their regular season wins, they had 82 of them, something that's only been taught by the Bulls and the Warriors. This was an elite squad. And that year, they won their third championship of the decade of the 80s in 1986. It was an incredible roster. Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, Bill Walton, a great crew. And it was about to become even more spectacular. Because by a stroke equal parts genius and luck, the defending champion Celtics had found themselves with the second pick in the 86 NBA draft. And so they drafted with that pick collegiate phenom Len Bias. Bias was a six foot nine forward, a thousand watt smile, and a game to match. He was an incredible player. He could shoot outside. He could take you into the lane. And really, he was exactly what the Celtics needed because their stars, in truth, were beginning to age. And so Bias was youthful. He had speed. He had energy. He was exactly what they needed for another decade of dominance. He was the future. And so Two days after the Celtics drafted Len Bias, his name was plastered across newspapers around the country. And the headline read, basketball star Len Bias dead of heart attack. He wasn't a drug user that we know of. He had passed drug tests with the Celtics and other teams, but he had decided to celebrate with drugs his draft. And he had a massive heart attack from it. Dead. Before he could ever play with Larry Bird, before he could ever hit a jumper in the Boston Garden, before he could guard Michael Jordan in an Eastern Conference Finals, snuffed out in an instant. He's considered one of the greatest players to never play in the NBA, but a life, a future of best laid plans lost. And our psalmist tells us, do not put your trust in princes, in mortals in whom there is no help for when their breath departs, they return to the earth. On that very day, their plans perish. The central question of our text this morning, Psalm 146, is whom shall we trust? Should we place our trust in a human being, even a skilled, powerful, adept human being, in something that is bound by time, something or someone that can be gone in an instant, or should we place our trust in something eternal? Something imperishable. Something that doesn't change. That's the question at the heart of our text this morning. And I want to linger for a moment in verses 3 and 4, actually, because I think they stand as an important foil to the rest of the psalm that we'll get into. So, do not put your trust in princes, he says, in mortals in whom there is no help. When their breath departs, they return to the earth, on that very day, their plans perish. There's, there's an interesting little bit of wordplay happening in the Hebrew. That word mortals, other translations call it just human beings. Uh, but the word there is Adam or Adam. Just like Genesis 2, the first man. It's Adam. And then that word for ground or earth is Adamah. So what he's saying is the Adam returns to the Adamah. That from dust we come and to dust we shall return. That human beings are mortal and eventually they will wind up back where they came from. But perhaps the more important word in this text is princes. Because when we talk about princes, we're not just talking about the Saudi or British royal family, though I think that would be included. Uh, We're not just talking about elected officials in America, though again, I think that applies as well. But we're talking more broadly about powerful humanity. We're talking about nobles, leaders, people with power and resources who seem properly to be in charge. People who we think should be running things. And these are precisely the people that we are often putting our trust in. And in America, it's not just elected officials, people who are princes or princesses by democracy, but also by celebrity. Right? It's our actors and actresses, our, our rock stars, it's our billionaires and CEOs, our influencers and tastemakers. These are the people we often place our trust in. And the psalmist says, not so fast. Because this line of trusting in princes is an ever-present temptation. And I think it's based on the fact that we believe this is the way the world gets better. These are the people who can get the job done. These are the ones who are equipped to run the world. And the world will indeed get better if we follow them, is what we often think. But I think this is tied into something that's often referred to as the myth of progress. So this is a belief that has kind of been perpetuated over the last few centuries and had a really decisive push during that period called the Enlightenment. But it is a belief that we as humanity, if we really try, if we really buckle down and try and do things right and band together, we can march ever onward towards perfection. It's a belief that really we can, through our our scientific and economic advances, if we just spread enough prosperity, if we just spread enough democratic ideals, we really can reach a human utopia. This is the myth of progress, and I believe it stems largely from our trust in princes. It stems largely from our trust in the power of humankind to march ever onward toward perfection. And our psalmist says, this is a misplaced trust. And here's why it's misplaced. I think there are two pretty dangerous errors that we often fall into when we place our trust in princes and princesses, powerful leaders. And the first one is this, trust in princes, it diminishes our hope. It diminishes our hope because when we choose to put our trust in princes, we are trusting in something temporal. We're trusting in something limited by time, limited by human existence, by finitude. As the the Celtics tragically found out, human beings can be gone in an instant, and the future, the hope, is gone. It's diminished. Humans are finite, but not just that. Humans are fallen. Human beings are fallen and there's this whole tragic history of us realizing every time we think we're on the cusp of that utopian community, we realize that we're fallen, we're sinful, we're broken. Andrew Carnegie was a 19th century steel tycoon in America. One of the top three, he's often listed as one of the top three richest people of the last half millennium, and in his autobiography, he has this section where he kind of talks about um, this period where he rejected theology, and he you know, left these supernatural beliefs behind, and he kind of goes on to what he calls this more optimistic outlook on life, and he, he says, all is well, since all grows better, became my motto. Man was not created with an instinct for his own degradation, but from the lower he had risen to the higher forms. Nor is there any conceivable end to his march to perfection. His face is turned to the light, he stands in the sun and looks upward. If you missed that, Carnegie's motto is, all is well since all grows better, which is Kind of the motto you would expect from one of the three richest human beings to walk the earth. But what's fascinating in his memoirs is, is towards the end, the actually very final paragraph. There's this strange and disturbing ending. The, the year is 1914. It's the beginning, the very outbreak of what we know as World War I. And if you skip down to that last paragraph in his autobiography, he says, "'As I read this today, what a change. The world convulsed by war as never before. Men slaying each other like wild beasts. I dare not relinquish all hope.'" It's this chilling ending because right after that, there's a couple more sentences and the manuscript just stops. It breaks off. And so we go from this man who says, all is well for all grows better and nothing can stop. Humankind's march toward perfection too. What a change. Men slaying each other like wild beasts. I dare not relinquish all hope. And if Carnegie had Lived another few decades, he might have seen the second outbreak of World War. And his hope may have been even closer to being relinquished. We need hope. And we have hope. But when we place that hope, that trust in princes, in humankind's power, it diminishes the hope. And the second error we often fall into when we put our trust in princes is that it distorts our values so when we put our trust in princes or princesses it shifts in unconscious often invisible ways our beliefs our values let me give you just one example in 2011 the Public Religion Research Institute, asked this question. Can an elected official who has committed private immoral acts be trusted to behave ethically and fulfill their public and professional duties? In 2011, 61% of white evangelicals said no. They can't be trusted. The the personal immorality would affect the public behavior as well. Only 30%, the lowest group, said, yes, that'd be fine. Five years later, 2016, they asked the very same question. Can an elected official who behaves immorally in private behave publicly, ethically well? And 72% of white evangelicals said yes. The personal immorality doesn't affect the public duties. Now what's interesting is everybody went up in America. The only category that actually didn't go up was the religiously unaffiliated. But white evangelicals went from being the least likely, 30%, to being the most likely 72% to say that an elected official's personal actions didn't affect their public or ethical professional duties N- now let me tell you what concerns me about this survey uh, because i'm not necessarily concerned with people changing their minds reevaluating their beliefs i think that's a healthy important thing to do but what concerns me is the unconscious adoption of another kingdom's values. Right, what concerns me is in every every corner, regardless of party or demographic, every corner of the playing field, what concerns me in all of us is this unconscious drift toward hyper-partisan allegiance toward allegiance to a different kingdom that in turn affects and distorts our kingdom's values in ways that we often don't even recognize, in ways that remain invisible to us. But there's good news for us. In Psalm 146, happy are those whose help is the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord their God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. This is the last beatitude in the entire Psalter. He says, Happy are those who trust in the God of Jacob, who keeps faith forever. Notice the contrast between the finitude of humanity, the mortality who perishes in an instant, and the eternal God of Jacob who keeps faith forever, who does what He says He will do, who understands the world and all of its nooks and crannies in ways we could never possibly hope to imagine, not because of anything with us, but who understands because He's the one who created it. He's the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, all that is in them. And he sees this world that is supposed to operate a certain way. And yet, it doesn't. We've broken things. We've created chaos through sin. And so what does God do? Take a look at the the end of the psalm here, verse 7 to the end. It's the Lord who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He upholds the orphan and the widow, but the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations Praise the Lord. Now notice that trust in God is not just founded on the fact of His power, of His permanence and eternality. It's founded on His character. It's founded on His character. That God has created the world and though we've messed things up, God is acting to restore that creation to its former glory. God is acting in these ways and He's calling us to do that as well. He's saying, look, economic disparity, starvation, those are not consonant with the way I've created the world to work. Those are not consonant with the God who reigns forever in Zion. You might recall that word for mortals in verse 3, Adam. It's translated mortals or human being, but I really like the ESV on this one. The ESV says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. There is one Son of Man worth trusting. There is one Son of Man in whom there is salvation. There is one Son of Man, one Prince who descended, who left His throne, gave up His power, whose breath did depart, but whose plans, whose ends and salvation is resurrected, and that is Jesus the Christ. There's one prince in whom we can trust, put our ultimate hope and trust, and that is the prince of peace, the same almighty God who is on the throne reigning forever is that Jesus Christ. And now, God's character, that list of things that God does, probably sounds a little fo- more familiar. Right? It sounds like Jesus' policy agenda in the Gospels. It sounds like everything that Jesus preaches and does, executing justice for the oppressed, giving food to the hungry, watching over strangers, defeating the ways of the wicked, Jesus Christ the same God who reigns forever. Praise the Lord. Over the last three months, we've been through 14 psalms together. And we've seen psalms that have sung the givenness and grandeur of God's creation. Psalms that have taken us to the lowest, darkest abysses and the highest, brightest heights. But the amazing thing about the way the Psalter ends here is that the last five psalms, beginning with this one, 146, are called the Hallelujah Psalms because they start and end, all five of them, with the word Hallelujah, with an invitation to praise the Lord. And isn't it beautiful that the story of the Psalms is a miniature of our own story. Because what is our end? What is that future in which we hope, in which we place our trust? It is unbroken praise and delight in God. The future and end we hope for is Blessing and bliss and praising the Lord, hallelujah, for eternity. That is the end towards which we hope. That is the new orientation that never ceases. And in this way, in the hallelujah psalms, this book is a miniature of our own story. I like the way Chris Green says it. He says, In the end, God will fully, truly surround us as a space that has no exterior. And in enveloping us as beginning, guide, and end, God will fulfill us just as he himself is all in all. Listen to this. The end is music. a music that does not end and so is always our beginning. The end is music, church. The end is the music of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in perfect, unbroken praise and self-giving love. That is the end where our hope is placed. If you want that to be your future, If you want that end in the triune God, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to follow Jesus into that end, to place your trust in the Prince of Peace. And I want to invite you to stand and begin to praise Him now. Hallelujah. Let's praise Him, church.